Hi, welcome again to our weekend services here at the Cornerstone. Uh, such a joy to have you join us. And this weekend, I want to talk to you about getting ready to possess, especially to possess the things in which God has prepared for us. You know, the Bible is made up of 66 books. There are 27 in the New Testament and, of course, 39 in the Old Testament. And if I were to ask you what is your favorite book in the Bible, perhaps many of you will cite the book of Psalms or the book of Proverbs. And I'm certain that many of you will also mention uh, various books in the Gospels or in the epistles of Paul. But I'm quite certain that very few of you would actually uh, cite the book of Numbers as your favorite book in the Bible. And the reason is because so few people really understand the purpose of Numbers other than it being just a part of the continual account of what happened to Israel after they came out from captivity. In fact, many of us, we see Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as a continuous account of the history of the nation of Israel in her nascent beginnings. Now, in truth, there's so much about these books that we must really grasp and understand. But it got, you know, you've got to go beyond just a casual and surface reading of the, these books and to observe and see things that you might not uh, initially observe. Now, for a, for a start, we need to understand and note that these books go far beyond just being merely a historical account of Israel's beginning. Now, here's something interesting, and I've got some slides that I would strongly, again, suggest that you download our church scribe app and uh, get a hold of the slides that we have for this weekend. But essentially, I've got some slides that will show you a little brief outline uh, of what happens from Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy. I want you to note in particular that in these slides, uh, I've, des I've put some dates and uh, timing into what those events are that happen in each of the books. And what you will notice is that the bulk of, the of these four books focus on, uh, focuses on three years uh, of Israel's time, you know, out of the 40 years that they, uh, she was in the wilderness. In fact, the 38 years um, that she was wandering in the wilderness, you know, was, uh, happened just somewhere between Numbers chapter 14 to Numbers 15. Now, if these books, okay, Exodus to Deuteronomy, were meant purely to be a historical account, then the distribution of what is uh, recorded is totally wrong. Because almost all that is told in these four books covers only a mere time frame of about three years, while 38 years of the history of Israel uh, during this period is really left untold. Now, honestly, this would be a poor record of history, to say the least. And we have to conclude, or come to this conclusion, that these books are meant to be mere historical recordings of events. Instead, if there is a historical narrative that is included in these four books, it is incidental to the underlying instructions that God wants to convey to us. In other words, the historical records are given in order to give a context to the message that God wants to bring to us. God is not concerned with merely accounting for days or years or months, but instead He's interested in what needs to be communicated in order to instruct us, instruct us with a specific eye for what is lasting principles so that what is told has as much application for us today as it had thousands of years ago when these books were written. Now, let's consider the book of Numbers more specifically. You see, when you read the book of Numbers, you cannot but get a sense that the book is somehow composed of a motley string of unrelated subject matters. 
right? I mean, there are two censuses that are recorded for us in which the people were numbered. You know, there's a strange array of laws uh, that is also recorded in uh, the book of Numbers. There is, of course, a historical narrative. And then there are various other instructions for how Israel were to organize itself. Now, this all seemed really haphazard and random. And however, if this is our conclusion that we think that, hey, you know, numbers is just a, you know oddball collection of subject matters, then I want to say that we've completely missed the point of this book. The book of Numbers is, in fact, intentionally curated to convey a very definite message to us that has great applicability for us today. And what is that message? Okay, I want to say that there is a clear, distinctive thread of instructions that God wants to communicate to us from this book and it is about the order that needs to be established and that has to be put in place before we can enter in and possess what He has for us. And hence the message title about getting ready to possess. You see, the book of Numbers brings this out with clarity more than anything else. There is a setting in place of order for the nation of Israel before she's able to go into the promised land. Now just take note of these few things. For example, in the book of Numbers, we are told the layout of how Israel were to camp. Which tribes were to the east, which tribe were to the west, to the north and to the south. That's found in Numbers chapter 2. There is a leadership structure that is laid out for us and that's found in Numbers 11, verse 16 to verse 30. You know, Israel's movement, we are told, is controlled by two silver trumpets and that's Numbers chapter 10. The order of the feasts of Israel and how they're to be celebrated is found in Numbers 28 and 29. And then there is a religious order of Israel that is reiterated and given to us in Numbers chapter 3 to chapter 4. There is also a challenge to the order that is established, a challenge against the leadership structure, and that's found in Numbers 16. And of course, you know, in the prophecies that were given by Balaam to Israel, we find that there is an amazing description of the order that Israel had, and that's found in Numbers 23 to 24. Now, it is to this end that I want to help us understand an important application that this book of Numbers has for us. And in order to do that, I want to just explore something about freedom before that, okay? Now, in, a, in, in, in Genesis, we have to also realize that Genesis is not just a history of the nation of Israel, but it is also a history, a record of human nature. It tells us clearly what God has embedded inside us human beings, and we are the one creation that is made in His image, and especially imbued with free will, the freedom to choose. But you see, Genesis tells us what happens next once freedom and, the free, and free will has been given to mankind. And the outcome and the results is really far from perfect. You know, in, in chapter 2 of uh, Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve in his own image, imbues them with free will. But one chapter later, in Genesis chapter 3, we, have, we see immediately that Adam and Eve uses the free will that they've, given, they've been given in an act of disobedience which leads to the fall of all of mankind. One chapter after that, in chapter 4, Cain kills Abel, and we have the first murder. In chapter 6, the wickedness of man had filled the earth so much that God determined to destroy the earth, and He does with a flood. Now, even as the, as the Lord purges the earth and starts anew with Noah and his family of eight, before long we have the incident of the Tower of Babel and, and God confuses, God had to come down and confuse the language of the people and scatter them because their intentions were again evil and that's in Genesis 11. 
Now, it seems very much that while God had created a world that is good, yet His creation of man seems to have completely and constantly thwart that very same good that God had put in the earth. Now, this is a fundamental quality that was given to men, and it is this quality that throws the equation off balance, and that is the quality of the free will that has been given to us. Here's another way to look at the picture that God is conveying to us from the account of Genesis to Exodus, God created mankind in His own likeness, particularly with the freedom to choose, and we call that free will. And yet, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Genesis chapter 11, just about eight chapters, it shows us what happens when freedom comes with no limits and no bounds, with no limitations. Mankind exercises his free will or, you know, at his own individual's fancy with no regard for others. And the result is calamity and they did whatever that was right in their own eyes. The Bible in Genesis chapter 4, 19 talks about a man called Lamech. And you know, when God instituted marriage, He instituted it between one man and one woman, and that's monogamy. But Lamech was the first to enter into a polygamous relationship where he had two wives, right? And he broke those boundaries. He, He didn't follow the boundaries that God has given to him. And in his arrogance, he said this, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech... 77-fold. What arrogance. You know, Lamech murdered someone and yet he still claimed an entitlement of protection and vindication. Now, this is, how, what, this is what freedom looks like. Free, freedom without any control. You know, people did whatever was right and whatever they wanted. Now, here's a couple of more other descriptions of that. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, it tells us that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they choose. You see, the sons of God were driven by their lusts and by their desires and they took whomever they desired. There was no restraint or consideration. Genesis chapter 6 verse 4, we are told that there were giants on the earth in those days. And the word giants here is the word Nephilim, which means violent or causing others to fall. In other words, these were violent tyrants that arose and uh, they fell upon the rest of the people. In other words, in those days, you know, uh, you know, the strong did whatever they wanted. This was what happened when individual freedom was taken to an extreme. But the Bible doesn't stop there, and we are shown the alternative to this. For by the time we come to the book of Exodus, we see the opposite happening, and particularly to the Jewish people. And this is where freedom is taken away. Where in, in earlier on in the account of Genesis, where freedom was given and there was no bounds, but here now in this case, you know, that their freedoms were taken away, and what resulted when freedom is removed is harsh slavery, suppression, Oppression and in the end, infanticide. Now, take a look at the slides that I prepared for you. On the one hand, there is no order. Everyone did whatever they wanted. The result is chaos and tyranny. On the other hand, there is total order and no freedom and individual freedom is removed and what results is slavery and oppression. Now then comes the picture of Israel. This is where God raises up the nation of Israel and makes a covenant with this nation because the establishment of Israel is to give an expression to another kind of freedom and order, and that is God's order. It is an order where there are boundaries set around the expression of how we can express our freedom, and these boundaries are boundaries of law, of ethics, as well as morality. The sequence of events then is painted for us, is very, very coherent. 
Freedom without order leads to anarchy, while order without freedom results in slavery. Now, God begins with the nation of Israel to construct a society that both values freedom as well as order and responsibility. For the book of Numbers, it is about this order that needs to be established before the nation of Israel can actually go in and possess the promised land and begin to build the nation that God intended for her to be. Now, I like in some ways to point us to this application and what this application has for us. You see, just as there is a specific kind of order that is needed for the nation of Israel to go in and possess God's promises, there are also specific areas of order that God wants to make sure is in place in our lives before He leads us into the promises that He has for us. Now, for the rest of this message, this is what I want to focus on. I want to talk about some specific areas in which God wants to put and position order because without this order, we really cannot accomplish everything that He has planned and intended for us to do. And I want to particularly look at some of the key events as well as the instructions that are given in Numbers because that's what Numbers is. Numbers isn't just a random collection of instructions, but all these instructions are coherent. All these instructions are carefully curated so that we understand what it means to be able to be in order so that our lives are not lived in fertility, wandering in the wilderness all of our times. Amen? Now, three things I want to talk about. The first is that there is a census that is needed. Now, it's very interesting that the census is taken every time Israel is about to enter the Promised Land. The first instance was found in Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2. And of course, this census was taken because God was about to bring Israel into the Promised Land. But unfortunately, this generation that had been counted in Numbers 1 and 2, you know, they failed to enter the Promised Land and they, because of unbelief, because of their unwillingness to trust God. And as a result, they perished in the wilderness. Then the second census is taken in Numbers 26. And of course, this relates to the new generation that entered the Promised Land with Joshua and Caleb. Now, we need to notice and understand that there is significance that before you enter the Promised Land, that God needs to take a census. Now, a census is all about people. Regardless of the wealth of natural resources a nation might have, her greatest asset remains her people. And that's why every nation does a census every now and then because they know and they understand that people are the greatest resource. I think that, you know, Singapore, the fact that Singapore has no natural resources has turned out to be a blessing for us because it, we didn't have to go around, the, you know, the, the bushes, but we came straight to an understanding that people are the most valuable asset that we have. Now, in much the same way as we approach everything that God has called us to do, it is important for us to also take a census or a head count of the people that God has placed around us. We need to understand that no man, no woman is ever an island to himself or herself. We can never accomplish what God has for us on our own, but God puts us as a collection of people together in order to fulfill what He has for us. Everything that God wants to do in your life, He's going to do it uh, through people. Now, for Israel... She needed 12 tribes, and each tribe was positioned differently, and each tribe was unique. You see, the same, the same thing applies for us. God wants to bring different types of people into our lives, people of different tribes, people of different streams, and He wants to position them differently in relation to us. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but there are 12 tribes that surrounded the tabernacle of Moses or the presence of God. And the presence of God is kept in the middle of the camp. Now, it, I think that that speaks something significant to us, that no matter what tribe that you're from, you are all equidistant away from the presence of God. Right? And that's something significant. In other words, it doesn't matter what stream, what uh, tribe that we are, we all have access to God. Now, there's one thing that we need to remember that is that we must not just only welcome those people who are just like us. In fact, God wants to bring people who are, uh, into our lives that are different from us. We need people with different gifts, people who see things differently from us. We need people who think differently from us. Now, if you're an, a very organized person, that one, what you need is you need people who are very intuitive. Now, if you're good with the macro view of things, then I guarantee you this, you need people that are very focused, who see the micro. Now, if you're a task-oriented person, then what you need is people who are very people-oriented around you. Now, what is so important is to know the purpose for which God brings these people into our lives. And what is that purpose for? Now, in so doing, we know how to accord time, resource, and attention to these people. You see, many times the problem for us is that you know, we don't realize what the uh, purpose is for the people that God has brought into our lives. You know, we, we, not, we don't realize what it is that they are supposed to do for us because let me tell you this, there are some people who come into our lives to remind us about our families or to show us the things that are really important. Other people, they come into our lives because they have a way of warning us of the pitfalls that lies ahead of us. Still others have an ability to call out blind spots to us while others come to strengthen our hands and, you know, encourage us. And still others, they are there who are positioned just to be our friends. And trust me, we all need friends. Now, when you know which person is for what purpose in our lives, then we don't place the wrong expectations on them. And we don't ask them to do things that they are not uh, supposed to be doing in our lives. You see, if someone is there to guard us and who is, who, is, who is there to speak to us and correct us, then we need to give ear to listen to them when they warn us. Others who are there to meet our social needs, oftentimes it is better just to keep them as friends rather than asking them to become your co-workers. I mean, take my wife and I, for example. You know, me and my wife, we make a great team together as husband and wife, father and mother. But I know for a certainty that we cannot work together formally in a workplace environment that would ruin our relationship. You see, that's what I understand about how we are wired up to be. And so I keep my wife as my wife and I don't try to make her my co-worker in the office. Now, all in all, it is important for us to really take stock of the people whom God has placed around us. And please note that not everyone in your life should have an equal say about what happens in your life. Some people that are there in our lives, they are there to teach us and coach us concerning our finances, but there are others who give us advice for different things. You know, and what it means is that, you know, there are, some, there, are, there are some people when they give you advice or say something to you, their voices has to carry more weightage than others. And this is, you know, this has to do with how God has plugged these people into our lives. Now, think of this for a moment, okay? I've got three boys at home and, you know, trust me, when you have children, when they reach a certain age, they like to correct you. And my boys correct me very often and I have to say this, that I, uh, when they do correct me, it carries a lot of weight. And the reason is because they live with me. They see things in me that others don't. 
not only that, God has, has given them to me as my sons, you know, and therefore I need to listen to what they have to say to me. But I want to say this, that it is that heeding their correction is really not the easiest thing to do because most times there are little rascals running around the house, okay? And it takes humility for us, especially to listen to the people who are the closest to us. No, you know, another group of people that I listen to are my staff because, and, uh, and the team that works directly for me. And their words carry more weight as well. And the reason is because many times my decisions will affect them the most. They work for me. They see my flaws up close and personal. And hence, I have to pay extra attention and I have to make room for them so that they can bring correction to me. Now, the problem is that we often place a lot of weight on the, voice, uh, on the voices of outsiders who hardly know us. I mean, think about this. You know, when you get a prophecy from a guest speaker, you know, who just comes once a year or once in two years, and then we take those prophecies and they mean the world to us. And yet when our pastors come and they correct us, we wouldn't listen to our pastors. If our cell leaders came, you know, and, uh, and they, you know, corrected something in us, we wouldn't listen to our cell leaders or our friends, you know. You see, the thing is this, our cell leaders, our pastors, our family members, you know, these are the people that invest in us on a weekly basis into our lives. They are the ones who will be there for us, you know, when we get into a, a difficult time and into trouble. Let me say this, trust me on this, okay? That Bill Johnson, Heidi Baker, and many of these famous speakers, they are not going to fly down from wherever they are just to be with you when you go through a hard time. But who are the ones who is going to be there with you? It's your church family. It's your cell group. It's the people, the pastors, the leaders, and your cell friends who are there all around you who are going to be there when you need help. Amen? Now, the second thing that needs to be put in order is the order of the priests or the priesthood. Now, when this is another area which is a major focal point of the book of Numbers. You know, and, um, and it's about establishing the priestly order. Now, there's a lot of uh, instructions, and they're quite extensive, in giving that has been given concerning the duties of each of the families that is within the tribe of Levi. This can be found in Numbers chapter 3 to chapter 4, Numbers 8, as well as Numbers 18 and 19. Now, this speaks about the spiritual order that needs to be set in place in our lives. Now, one of the essential understandings we need to have concerning the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament is that the tribe of Levi was the tithe you know, of Israel on behalf of everybody. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 41, we are told this, um, and you shall take the Levites for me, God is speaking, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And the livestock of the Levites shall, uh, instead of all the firstborn among the livestock of the children of Israel. You see, the principle of the first is the principle of the first fruits and the firstborn. And not, what the principle of the first means is that the first fruits and the firstborn, they all belong to God. And this is a principle of expressing that God is first in our lives. In other words, the expression of this in the Old Testament is that every firstborn child of Israel belongs to God and had to be given to the service of God. If this was to be applied today, what it means is that all the firstborns here in Cornerstone, your firstborn child, has to be given to be trained and given for full-time ministry. All of them has to be packed off to Bible school and they all have to come into full-time ministry. But instead of every member, uh, every family in Israel giving up their firstborn child, the Lord took the tribe of Levi, the whole tribe itself. And so Levi were the only ones 
who did not have an inheritance of land and property amongst the children of Israel. Instead, their inheritance is God Himself. They were given places, of course, to dwell in. There were cities that were assigned for them, you know, and they were not like homeless folks. They were wandering around, okay? They didn't have animals and, you know, some farming land in certain areas and things like that. But otherwise, they were not given the same expense of property and land as compared to the other tribes. And so the Levitical priesthood speaks particularly about the principle of the first. And it is this, this is the same principle of the tithe. That is why we tithe. The first 10% of our, you know, is the expression of this principle of the first. You know, and, and, and it's an expression to tell God, Lord, you are first in our lives. But let me say this, God isn't just looking for the tithe of our income, and that is important. But he's also looking at the principle of the first being applied into our personal lives in terms of our devotion to him. So the, 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 the order of the priesthood isn't just about coming into full time. It's about an, a spiritual order that God wants us to establish in our lives, right? I mean, after all, in the New Testament, we are all kings and priests unto the Lord. And so that is the first order that needs to be established. An order of the principle of the first. God must come first in our lives. Now let's look at the spiritual order that, you know, um, that pertains to the role of the families of the tribes of Levi, particularly there are three families, the families of Kohath, uh, Gershon, and Merari. You see, the sons of Kohath were in charge of carrying the holy articles and the furniture of the tabernacle. The priests themselves, the, you know, the, the family of uh, Aaron, they would cover it with blue cloth and then the sons you know, of Kohath would be in charge of looking after and carrying the furniture. The sons of Gershon, on the other hand, were in, in charge of the coverings, you know, the tent, the curtains, the screens, the doors, and they were to look after those and to carry those on their journey. While the sons of Merari were in charge of the structure of the tabernacle. Now, when it is when we look at their names and the meaning of their names, that it really gives us a, an insight to the spiritual order that God wants from us. Now, the name Kohath means uh, obedience. At the same time, the, the name also means a gathering or a congregation. Gershon's name means a sojourner there, while Merari means set bitter or strong. So here we have a revealing sense of what God has instituted for our spiritual order just by looking at the names and the meaning of the names. What God requires out of us as, uh, you know, in, the, in the spiritual order within us is that first He requires obedience from us. At the same time, we need to understand that our spiritual experience is not individualistic, but congregational because there is a gathering, a congregation that comes together. Also, we must put on the mindset of a sojourner because the present world is not our home. Now, isn't it interesting that Gershon means sojourner and he's in charge of the coverings, which are, are, are items that, are, that seem temporal, the tentage, you know? And, and that's what his name means. And that's the attitude of being a pilgrim upon this earth that God wants from us. And finally, there's a huge part of our spiritual lives uh, which constitute what is bitter, sad, as well as strong experiences. And interestingly, you know, um, Merari is in charge of the fixtures or the, or the you know, uh, infrastructure of, of the tent. And what this means for us is that, you know, the, if the bitter experiences, the sad and the, and the strong experiences in our lives, that builds the structure into our spiritual lives. And these are the things that helps us develop faith, hope, as well as love. And so that's the spiritual structure required. Thirdly, and finally, of course, is the order in our hidden parts. 
Now, I want for us to consider Numbers chapter 5, verse 5, all the way to Numbers chapter 6, verse 21, okay? It's a fairly extensive, about a chapter's length, and within this passage of Scripture, you will see a sudden mention of three things that really seems uh, really out of place, okay, in the sense of the context of Numbers, okay? And these three things has to do with confession and restitution, and then uh, how to deal with un unfaithful wives, and then the law of the Nazarite. Now again, these things that can, uh, are being talked about, that is uh, being mentioned, you know, they're really very random and unrelated, okay? Because in Numbers chapter 1 to 4, it's all about the census, the order, and the role of the family of Levi. And then thereafter, it's talking about leadership matters. So it's very clearly talking about order and structure. And yet in the midst of this, there are three uh, random instructions given one about confessing, you know, something we've done wrong. One about, you know, suspecting your wife of adultery. And then, of course, the law of the Nazarite. So what's the point of these three things? Again, I want to invite you to take a step back and to look at what the underlying issue that is being referred to by all these three matters. Now, the first one that is mentioned, you know, about confession and restitution, it is really about the fact that when we, you know, um, uh, it's really about making right mistakes that we had previously made. These are mistakes whereby we have not been truthful, you know, or as a result, we've gained some kind of advantage for ourselves and, and we have disadvantaged somebody else, you know, and that's why there's a restitution required. At the same time, these were things that were not discovered or spotted by other people. These were mistakes or sins that we've committed that were undiscovered. And that's why there's a need for confession and then restitution. Notice the restitution amount is also different from other restitution amounts mentioned other places in um, the, the Old Testament, right? And because this is where you are not caught for what you have done wrong, but you have coming forth in truthfulness to confess something that you have done wrong. Now, the second matter has to do with wives who are some, uh, suspected of adultery. Uh, but the adultery cannot be proven. Now, I want to just mention this, that the extracted principle for this applies equally to men, even though the subject matter that is mentioned here only speaks about the wives. In this case, you know, much like the first matter, the issue cannot be proven. Okay, there's a suspicion of adultery, you know, but it cannot be proven. And finally, the third matter relates to those who want to take up a Nazarite's vow. You see, a Nazarite vow generally isn't a lifelong vow, okay? There are only one or two persons in the Bible that did that. And of course, there's Samson, you know, there is uh, Samuel. But, you know, it, the Nazarite vow really was something that was done for a period of time whereby a person would make a vow to separate himself to the Lord. You know, it was voluntary, it was personal, it was like a consecration to God. And what was particularly distinctive about this vow was an abstinence of, uh, from alcohol that is made. Now, what is it that links these three unrelated matters together? You know, and it really is the issue of personal conviction. You see, all three matters relate to something that is hidden, that is unknown, that people cannot see, for which only we ourselves are aware of. In the first case, the sin wasn't known to others, but required a confession before restitution can be made. The offender wasn't caught, but came forth and confessed, and a provision is made when we come forth ourselves to confess. The second matter, again, is about adultery that cannot be proven. There is merely a suspicion by the spouse Finally, in the matter of the Nazarite, it was a personal conviction, it was a personal consecration, 
And we had to keep it ourselves. No one's monitoring whether you're drinking secretly or not. But if you've taken a Nazarite vow, you were accountable to yourself to keep that vow. Now, here's my interpretation of these three things that seems random. That when it comes to putting order in our lives, in order for God to bring His purposes to pass in our lives, we need to move beyond a place where we only do what is right when we know that we are being watched or monitored by people. And the particular expression of this comes in three areas. In the area of our integrity, that we are honest, that we are truthful in what we do. In our moral purity. So even though there might be a suspicion that we walk right before God in this area of our sexual purity. And finally, in the area where we have consecrated ourselves to God. You see, when no one is watching, do we still do the best that we can? You know, we don't cut corners, we don't shortchange other people, we act with integrity even when we know that we will not be found out. That's what the confession and restitution refers to. When no one is watching, do we still walk in purity still? When we are at work assignment overseas and we're traveling, and we go, do we go to places that we shouldn't be going to uh, when we are alone? When we know that nobody's going to find out what we do, we call for some room service that is sexual in nature, when we think that we will not be discovered or will we maintain our sexual purity even when nobody is watching? Finally, when we make a vow to the Lord, do we keep it even when no one is watching? You decide to fast from TV or social media or from alcohol or do some things, you know, or some other areas in which you have given yourself to make a consecration to God. You know, it's just between you and God. Nobody's watching, nobody's monitoring if you're suddenly or secretly drinking or watching, you know, your TV when you said you will not. Nobody's watching if you kept your vow or not. But guess what? Accept the Lord. You know, would you keep your consecration? You know, or would you cut corners when no one is watching? You know, you might think that nobody's watching, but guess what? God is always watching. He knows when you think no one knows, when you, often we are concerned with people looking at us, judging us. We forget that God is really the one who is watching and He is the ultimate judge. And for these three things to be placed in the midst you know, uh, of the order that God is establishing to bring Israel into the promised land, let me say this, that God watches these secret things that nobody sees and these are the things that qualifies us to go in for what God wants to do. Think about Joseph's life. When nobody was watching, he walked in integrity, in his sexual purity. He resisted the advances of Potiphar's wife and therefore God promoted him and brought him to his next place of assignment. Of course, his next place of assignment was a prison. And, uh, but nonetheless, it was a place of greater responsibility and you know, one step nearer to where God really wants him to be. So church, I want to encourage us in this area. The book of Numbers has really got a lot of application for us. And these applications are important and have significance because they speak about our progression in our walk with God. The first thing is that we need to take count of the people that are around us. We need to value them. We need to know how to approach you know, each of them, listen to them as we should, you know, giving them the right weightage of advice and what God has placed in our lives. We need to properly account and make sure they are properly positioned in our lives. The second thing is that we got to make God first in our lives, right? Putting Him first. We need to understand the families of Levi and what they speak to us. And of course, finally, the order that God wants to establish in our lives is the things that are unseen by the people that He sees alone. Our integrity, our purity, as well as the areas of our consecration. Church, I want to ask us to be um, contemplative about what is spoken today. 
because I really believe that we are entering a season where, you know, there is a, a time, you know, of inactivity. But when things begin to open up, I really believe there's a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit that's going to blow. Would you be ready for it? Would you be positioned for what God wants to do? Will the order have been established in your life that God wanted to put in place during this, you know, last 12 months, you know, and perhaps 18 months, you know, of captivity through the COVID season? And I pray that we'd be all ready, that order would have been established. And when the doors do open, that we would be able to go in and enter in and possess what God has for us individually as well as corporately. Amen. God bless you. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.